Well, I want to take a minute to say hi and welcome to Calvary Quakertown. It's great to have you join us this morning. We're in a series that we're calling Reality Check. And the reason for the series is that we live in a world of misinformation and fake news. This is our seventh installment in that series. And what we try to do each week is to compare and contrast messages from our culture with messages from the Bible. So how does reality in the Bible square with the news or the promptings that we're hearing from our culture? And they haven't lined up real well thus far. Well, this morning we're going to talk about money. And some of you are thinking, now why did I come? Well, we didn't announce it last week because maybe we thought you wouldn't come. But it is kind of interesting to realize that the Bible has more to say about money than most topics it speaks to. Let me give you an example. How many verses do you think speak to faith and prayer? Just a guess. About 500 verses speak about faith and prayer. How many verses in the Bible do you think speak about money? Over 2,000 verses. Now, why does the Bible have so much to say about money? Well, I think part of the reason goes something like this. God created us with a motivation on the inside. We're drawn to something. And that twofold something that we're drawn to is significance and security. We long to find security. We know that most things kind of aren't going to work out. They're temporal. They don't satisfy. We long for security and we long for significance. We long to be someone and to experience that. You see, God gave us those two things inside so that we would search for and find Jesus. And so those impulses in us were designed to pull us and drive us to Jesus and the gospel. The problem is we allow those impulses, those motivations, to pull us and take us into other directions. And money is God's biggest competition in our world. After all, what does money promise? Money promises security. If you have enough money, you'll be secure. You'll be able to handle tomorrow, next week, retirement. You'll be able to take care of your family. Money will give you security. Oh, and money will give you significance. You'll be somebody. Drive the right car, have the right address, have the right kind of vacations. Significance and security, money promises, and God does too. Those, those impulses will pull us to Jesus or in another direction. Maybe that's part of the reason that the Bible speaks so often about money. Well, we've got a little uh, compare and contrast that we need to do today. We're going to start with a quiz, though. Most of you in the room know something about money. Maybe not much, maybe, you know, and maybe what you know is fake news or mis misinformation, but we all know something. So we're going to take a little quiz. It seems to me that we learn about money from four primary sources. We learn about money from our parents, and you may not have had a great financial education from your parents, but you learned something about money from your parents. Maybe they lived in fear and anxiety. Maybe there wasn't enough. Maybe it was extravagance. But you learned some things about money from your parents. You also learn about money from Payne University. You learn about money from the school of hard knocks, right? You make some bad financial decisions and you kind of get beaten in that process. Well, you're learning those lessons. Some of you learn about money from pastors. After all, the Bible speaks about money like 2,000 times. If the guy's preaching from the Bible, eventually he 
preachers come up and talk about money. And some of us learn about money from the professionals, whether that's Dave Ramsey in his university or whether it's Susan on TV. You learn about money different places, right? So let's take a little quiz. You can answer more than once. Let me ask you, how many of you learned about money from parents? Raise your hand. Yeah, we learned about money for good, bad, otherwise, right? Put them down. How many of you learned about money from the school of hard knocks and pain? Yeah, right? You kind of did it that way. It didn't quite work out. You're still dealing with the consequences. Pastors, anybody learned about money from a preacher, what they say about the Bible? Yeah, okay. How about the professionals? You read a book, went to wise, uh, Money Wise or something? Yeah. The problem is, what is reality? What's fantasy? What's fiction? What's nonfiction when it comes to money? Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at a few verses from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And uh, that's the longest section in the scripture that deals with the topic of money. So those two chapters are all about money. And a lot of what God says elsewhere is kind of highlighted here. And God does it in a particular context that we'll talk about in a few minutes. But I'm going to read one verse from chapter 8 and then a few verses from chapter 9. And let me, let me tell you how the chapters are put together. In the beginning of chapter 8, Paul is speaking to a particular situation. He's trying to encourage the people in Corinth to give generously. That's the particular situation, and we'll come back to that. But before he moves on from the situation, he highlights the reason that they should give. What's the motivation? What's the engine under the action? Look at verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8. For, there's the because, right? Why should you give generously? Because you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. Notice Paul roots everything he says about money in the gospel. He roots it in the mission of Jesus. And in fact, he uses financial terms to help us understand the gospel. Here's Jesus, infinitely wealthy. He sees people like us in hopeless and helpless, poverty-stricken situations. He gives up his infinite wealth and goes on the mission of bringing riches to us. Jesus gives up his wealth to make poverty-stricken people like us wealthy. That's the gospel in financial terms. That's the gospel according to Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 8. There it is. That's the engine. Now, jump over to uh, chapter 9. And toward the end of chapter 9, Paul now lays out some principles. So based on that, based on the gospel, here is how we should live in light of that. Look at verse 6 of chapter 9. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And look at the last verse of chapter 9. We go back to the gospel. Here's another bookend. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He begins with the gospel, ends with the gospel, 
In between, he speaks to the Corinthians and teases out some financial principles. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to compare and contrast some fake news or misinformation from our culture and then jump into the principles. Now, we could talk about the fake financial news and the misinformation about money for the rest of the morning. I'm only going to tease out three strands of that. So here's some fake news. Here's the first one. More is better. You ever heard of that? You ever thought? That's how we often live, right? More is better. If you have a little, well, more would be better. If you have a lot, more would be better. What do we need? We need more. More, 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 right? That's kind of, we need to be uh, taller, wealthier, wiser. We need more, more. That's how the story goes. More, more, more. Now, compare that bit of news from the culture with the message of Jesus that Paul spoke of. Is more better? Well, wait a minute. The story of Jesus is he gives up that incredible wealth and goes on this mission of poverty to make others wealthy. I'll tell you what, if more is better, then Jesus fails the test. He's living according to a different scheme. The gospel is different than the more is better plan. Here's another bit of news from our culture. Well, you can buy now and pay later. You've heard that, right? Um, Compounding interest is a problem though, right? In fact, often, if you only pay the minimum on your credit card, I think the rule of thumb is, you will wind up paying three to five times the actual amount of the item. That's what, that, that's what the credit card issuers want you to do. Pay the minimum, because then you'll maximize the payment on interest and minimize the principal payment. We live in a world where people have bought the news from our culture. Buy now. Credit card debt through the roof. Look at the national debt of our country. Through the roof. Student loan debt through the roof. What's the result? Defaults all over the place. Defaults on credit card debt, defaults on student loans. Maybe our country's defaulting in some of the debt. Yeah, buy now, pay later? Eh, doesn't really work. Here's my hunch. When I asked you, how many of you learned some financial lessons through the University of Pain? A whole bunch of you raised your hands. My guess is a lot of you had the pain because of the buy now pay later misinformation of our culture. How about another bit of fake news from our culture? But I'll be generous when, now you can fill in whatever you want after the ellipsis, right? I'll be generous when I get a real job. I'll be generous when they pay me what I'm worth. I'll be generous when I buy these few things that I need. I'll be generous when I get the car that I need. I'll be generous when You see, that's the message of our culture. I know, yeah, the Bible, God calls you to be generous. People want you to be generous. But you don't have enough yet to be generous. Here's the problem. We're poor judges of distance. When do you reach the when line? It's hard to reach it, right? And when you get close, you got a new when line way out there. Here's my guess. Most of us right now, if you're out of high school, most of us have more than we thought we would have when we were in junior high school. And maybe you thought, you know what, if, if I have what, what we actually have now, I'll be more generous. But we're not real generous now because we've moved the when line further out. As long as you keep moving the when line, you're never going to be generous. That's fake news. It's not going to work. So those are three, misin- three notes of misinformation that pervade our culture and have produced some of the bad experiences that we have when it comes to money. But I don't want to talk mainly about that. I want to talk about the principles that Paul teases out in these two chapters and you see illustrated throughout the Bible. The Bible has a lot to say about money because God wants us 
to check what's going on inside based on those motives and then learn the lessons so that we can live as good stewards. All right, so here are a couple bits of real news right from these chapters. Uh, The beginning of chapter 8 has some weird stuff in it. So let me read a few verses, give you a little of the background so you can understand. Here's what we read. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love, we have kindled in you. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. Now what the heck is that? All right, so here's what's going on. The city of Corinth was located in Achaia. Achaia is kind of the southern part of that part of the world. Macedonia was the northern part. Achaia in the south, Macedonia in the north. Corinth is in Achaia. The people in, people in Achaia thought they were better than the people in Macedonia, and the people in Macedonia thought that they were better than the people down in Achaia. Kind of like New York and Pennsylvania, or better yet, the Yankees and the Phillies, right? We know we're better than those guys, right? They're nothing but backstabbing, money laundering, right? Well, you know how it goes. So we think we're better. They think they're better. We kind of have it out. Well, it was worse than that, not just politically, economically. The Achaeans thought they were better than the Macedonians. The Macedonians thought that they were better. Now, here's what Paul's doing. Paul says, in case you never noticed, the people in Macedonia have been having a really, really difficult time. Uh, We're not exactly sure. Scholars debate exactly what was going on. Was there a famine? Was there other kind of difficulty? But anyway, they are basically poverty-stricken. They, they like, don't have two cents to rub together. They're really experiencing destitution. And Paul says, but it was amazing. When we were in Macedonia, they have nothing. We had no expectations that they would give to this mission at all. Paul's collecting money to deliver it back in Jerusalem to help meet the people's needs back there. And he wasn't expecting the Macedonians to give anything because they didn't have that much. But Paul said, they gave beyond what they were able. It was amazing. They kept giving and giving. They exceeded our expectations. And then on the other extreme, he mentions verse 9. Remember I read that at the beginning? Here's Jesus, infinitely rich. What's Paul doing? He's setting up a continuum. And what he's saying is, where do you fit on the continuum? On the one end of the continuum, you find the Macedonians. They're in a desperate situation. They're in a poverty-stricken kind of deal. Jesus, on the other end of the continuum, is infinitely rich, right? That's what he said in verse 9. Two different extremes. Two different situations. Poverty, infinite wealth. What do they have in common? They both gave generously and graciously. Huh. Macedonians had nothing, but they exceeded Paul's expectations and gave. Jesus, infinitely rich, 
graciously, generously gave. What's Paul doing? Paul's saying, okay, now, and where would you like me to write your name on that continuum? Isn't that what he's saying? The Macedonians gave, even though they didn't have that much. Jesus gave all, even though he's infinitely rich. Where would you like the Corinthian name to be written on that continuum? The Corinthians were much more wealthy than the Macedonians. Corinth was a tourist attraction. They had luxury hotels. Tourists went there all the time, the best restaurants. They had it all over the Macedonians. So Paul's saying, so where would you like me to write your name? So let me ask all of you. Where would you like Paul to write the name Calvary Church on that line? Macedonians had next to nothing but gave incredibly. Uh, here's Jesus, infinitely rich, gave everything. Where would you like to write Calvary Church? Oh, yes, make it a little more personal. Where would you like Paul to write your name? I hope it's on the generosity continuum. And if truth be told, we're not near the poverty-stricken Macedonian end of the continuum, are we? So how are we going to be placed on the continuum? Give generously in response to the gospel. That's the first principle. Now here's the second one. Learn the lesson that the farmers know. Learn, the, learn from the farmers. Now, uh, I just have to tell you, I am much more prepared to teach you about farming than I ever have before. Because my daughter Megan has a garden. So I basically know all that there is to know about gardening. She put in six tomato plants because we like tomatoes. She put in some, some string beans because somebody has to eat that mess. Put in some peppers. Uh, oh, and uh, she said to me one day, hey, Dad, do you like corn? Oh, sure, I love corn. Corn's the best vegetable. So she, okay, I'll, I'll put some corn in. So uh, my wife goes to the store, and we, we don't have patience. So rather than buying little corn things that you plant, Kim bought four corn plants, little baby corn plants, Four bucks a piece for a little corn plant. We have four. So we're thinking, all right, we're going to have corn all summer now, baby. Uh, so we put the little corn. Well, anyway, I'm talking to a, a farmer friend of mine, and he starts laughing when I'm telling him, what's the matter with you? He said, well, how many ears of corn do you think you get from a stalk? A couple dozen? I don't know, like <laughs> 40, 50? Uh, he started, no, no. You'll probably get one, maybe two. What the hell? Who came up with this scheme, right? Like a whole big thing of corn, you get like one or two ears on that? So I sat down, I'm doing the math. We have four corn plants that cost 16 bucks. Our best shot, our best shot is eight, year, eight ears of corn. That's two bucks an ear. I'm just guessing that that's not a good deal, right? I never bought corn, but I'm just guessing, right? Oh, what's the point? If you're going to sow spare, you're only going to put four corn plants in. Don't expect to eat much corn. It's going to be an expensive summer. How in the world can farmers make money planting corn? Because they plant thousands of acres of corn. That's how. They don't put four plants in. They put thousands and thousands of plants in. That's the lesson of the farmer. Here's what Paul says. Whoever sows sparingly, like Megan, will reap sparingly. 
And whoever sows generously will reap generously. So how are you sowing with that principle? Now remember, it's all grounded in the gospel. It goes back to Jesus giving everything. But where are you? Are you like the stingy farmer putting in a couple of plants? Or are you like the farmer that's sowing generously? The harvest will be determined by the amount of seed you sow. Now here's something we have to keep in mind. God never promises in these chapters or anywhere else in the Bible what the televangelists late at night tell you. That's misinformation. God never promises the currency with which the harvest will come. You may sow corn and get back something else. You may sow money and get back relationship. You may sow generosity and get back the honor and privilege of giving. You may sow resources and get back joy. The currency isn't going to be necessarily what you sow. God so works it out that he will never be your debtor, but the harvest may be in different terms than the seed was planted. That's where we often get tripped up. So that's our second little lesson. Here's the third one. Give, trust God and give joyfully. Look, look at the next verse. You wonder how it makes sense, right? Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I know you read that and think, that's ridiculous. I got this long list of stuff that I want, and I'm going to give some my money away that I could use to tick a couple of those items off the list. I'm going to give it away so somebody else can tick off the items on their list, and I'm going to be joyful about that? How does that work? Well, it's all about perspective. I went to uh, SALT last night. SALT is uh, one of the singles ministries we have here at Calvary, and a friend of mine was speaking, so I got invited to go, and uh, he was teasing out some lessons from the book of Ephesians, and his first lesson was, you get it all. It's amazing you get it all. And he kept using this illustration. Having Jesus as your Savior, being in a relationship with Jesus, is better than hitting the lottery. And I kept thinking about hitting the lottery. And don't laugh. Some of you thought about hitting the lottery too, right? But can you imagine? Have you ever fantasized $500 million? I know we'll never see you again. You're moving south and all that. I know, I know. Uh, But $500 million. Now here's my question. If you hit the lottery Friday for $500 million, how generous would you be taking people to lunch today? I'm just guessing you'd be willing to buy. You'd make us pay the tip, but you'd be willing to buy lunch, right? I mean, if you have $500 million that you're, that you're, um, that you're depositing, you can spare 150 bucks or so to take some of us to lunch. That's the point. That's how we can be joyful, hilarious givers if we're reminded that in Jesus we have everything. We've hit the lottery in Jesus. We get forgiveness of sins. We get a relationship with God. We get a community of brothers and sisters to go through life with. We get an eternity of of banquet and celebration forever. We get it all. Well, if you get it all, you can be generous with the little bit of material things that God trusts you with from here till the end. That's the point. If you lose sight of the gospel, the two bookends of the two chapter of those two chapters, you won't be able to give joyfully. But if you keep the two bookends together, joyful giving will be how we do it. Well, the next lesson. Generosity is inseparably tied to grace. Do you notice that? Every time in these chapters, Paul mentions giving 
Grace is in the context. Remember the grace of, of Jesus that you're experiencing and give. As you give, remember the grace. Grace and generosity go together. Now, here's how that works. Remember those two um, desires, those two motivations that we have being, being made in God's image. We long for security. We long for significance. And you go through life trying to find them in other places, but they were given to us so that we ultimately are driven, we're pulled to Jesus to experience them in him. When you find your significance and your security in Jesus, you move from being centripetal to being centrifugal. Now, what in the world is centripetal and centrifugal? Centripetal is the force that pulls everything into the center. Your toilet is centripetal, right? Everything gets pulled, right? Everything gets pulled. And before you find Jesus, our hearts are centripetal. We're trying to find significance and security in everything, right? We're, pulling, we're like giant vacuum cleaners going through life, trying to do this, trying, and we keep sucking them all in, and none of it works, right? Because our hearts were designed to find their fulfillment and be filled to overflowing in Jesus, and as long as you're trying to suck something else into the center, it's always going to be disappointing. You're always going to have a hole in your heart. But once those motivations pull you to Jesus... And Jesus now fills your heart. Now you don't have a vacuum in the center. Now you can live centrifugally. Now you're filled to overflowing. The well is filled to the top. So now you can spin off things in your life. You can give people your time and energy. You can exercise your gifts to benefit others. You can tell your story in ways that will reach out. And you can give of your resources to meet the needs of other people. Grace changes centripetal to centrifugal all the time. Oh yeah, there we are back with the testing again, right? So maybe money is a really good test. Maybe that's another reason the Bible talks so much about money. Are you living centrifugally or centripetally? If you're living centripetally, that means you may be a Christian, but you're not living out of the gospel. You're trying to find your significance and security somewhere else, and probably it's in something money can buy or money itself. Or are you living centrifugally, spinning things off, not to earn something, spinning them off because in the center you're filled to overflowing. So there are kind of the basic principles. You, you could find a few more there. But I don't want to end with the principles. I want to end with some news, but news for a particular group. I want to end with news for millennials. Now, if you don't know who millennials are, millennials are those people that were born kind of in the mid-80s to the mid-90s. Many of you are here. Now, the rest of you can kind of overhear and listen to what I'm going to say, because some of you may need these lessons too. But at least as I kind of navigate through life, millennials really need this news, because millennials were raised to be very spoiled. I'm not sure if you noticed. Well, we're all kind of spoiled as Americans, but millennials especially. Millennials have the propensity to, um, to get to work, and, you know, they're some in their early 30s now, and they don't get promoted the first two, two months at work. Like, they're all ticked off. Like, I've been here for six weeks. I haven't been promoted yet. What's the story with this job, right? And like, I, don't, I don't make as much as the CEO yet. I've, I've been here like a year. What's the problem? I mean, this company's lousy, right? So there's this spoiled, entitled kind of thing. So here are, here's some news for millennials but some of you haven't grown up yet, regardless of your age, so you can listen to millennial news too. 
I'm going to use the replacement language. Let's replace this with that. So all you millennials, this is for you. All you grown-ups that act like millennials, this is for you too. So here we go. Replace its mine with its gods. You see, as long as we, regardless of your age, as long as we live with the sense of, well, that's mine, you're never going to live with generosity. You see, there's not grace in there. There's merit in there. And what will stop you and, for, and me being generous is living not with a center of grace, but living with a sense of merit. After all, I've earned this. I deserve this. In fact, I deserve more than this. I've used my mind. I applied myself. I'm disciplined. I did this. I jumped through the hoops. I stay late. I work overtime. Time out. Whose stuff are you working with to do all that? God gave you your body. God gave you your family. God gave you your IQ. God gave you the means to pay for your education. Behind all of what you've done, God's been all over the place. His fingerprints are all over it all. So we need to replace its mind with its God's. And when you do, you move from stingy to generous. Replace its mind with its God's. And he's trusted us with a whole bunch of stuff even though we don't deserve to be trusted with it. Here's another replacement. Replace yellow with woo. All right, next one. Right. How many of you know what YOLO is? I raise your, oh, tell me, what, what is YOLO? You only live once. Now, if you've never said it, you've thought it, right? Should I make this big expenditure? Should I do this? Uh, well, you only live once. Heck with it, let's go for it. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't ever do that. All I'm saying is, replace you only live once with wise up, all right? Wise the heck up. I should have put an H in there. Wahoo, right? Wise up. So let me give you a couple of helpful hints with the wising up part. Here's an important lesson that we all need to learn. Younger people especially need to learn it. A really important biblical principle you find all over the Bible. Spend less than you earn. Well, let me try that again because I know you don't believe me. Spend less than you earn. That gets back to the, to the buy now, pay later kind of problem, right? The Bible says, don't buy now, pay later. Wise up. Spend less than you earn. Plan ahead. Be generous. Give to God. Trust God and give joy. Remember all those principles? We need to live them out. So rather than living with, well, I only live once, so I'm going to therefore fill every need that I have, and I'm, every want that I have, I'm going to meet. No, no, no. Wise up. I'm not saying you never spend things on enjoyment and pleasure. You need to do that too. But make sure you do it wisely. So instead of YOLO, woo. <laughs> Next one. Replace, don't tell me what to do, with I trust you and your plan. Now, I know you've never said, don't tell me what to do, uh, if you've never said it, I know you thought it. If you're married, I know you thought it. Uh, and, and, and you say it occasionally. If you have parents, you've said it. If you have friends, you've said it. If you go to church, you've said it. Who do you are? Don't tell me who the heck you think you are. Don't tell me what to do. Okay, here. I'm nobody. But God created us. He knows how we're wired. He put that significant security kind of vacuum in there. And he created us so that we would be drawn by that motivation to Jesus who supplies all that we need. 
don't have to listen to what I say. In fact, you don't have to listen to what God says. But here's the reality. If God's the creator and God's the savior, life will only work as you live it in sync with him. Therefore, rather than, don't tell me what to do, replace that with, God, I trust you. And even though it doesn't make sense to me, and it doesn't make sense to what these TV commercials are telling me, I know it doesn't make sense, but Lord, I'm going to trust you, and I'll follow through with your plan. How about that? I think we've got one other one. Replace, well, a little more money will solve my problems. I, I got all these problems right now, but if I had more money, that would solve my problem. Replace that with, let's be grateful for what we have right now. Not what you're hoping to have tomorrow. Not what you'll hope to have after you win the lottery. Be grateful for what you have right now. You do realize that the marketing, sales, advertising uh, business lines in this country literally spend billions of dollars a year to show us and to teach us to be discontent, right? This is not a neutral playing field. Billions of dollars spent every year to make us discontent. As long as you're content, you won't buy their product. So what does all that advertising and all that marketing do? It is to make us discontent. And if I'm discontent with what I've got, then I'll spend money because I'm going to find contentment in that new toothpaste. Or I'm going to find contentment in that thing. I'm going to find contentment in that. The reality is you're soon going to have that, and there's going to be another commercial, and you're going to be disconnected. That's that using your significant security to go down the wrong road. So here are some lessons, not just for millennials. We need to replace a lot of the fake news with the real news of the gospel. It's all God's. Wise up. God knows what he's doing. You can trust him and get in step with his plan. And God's loving, and God's omnipotent, Therefore, what you have right now is not an accident. You're in the situation exactly as God wants so that we can learn and grow, become stronger, healthier, and wiser. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for all that you teach us, especially all that you teach us about money. Lord, we confess that uh, we don't like to think about money much. And we certainly don't like to find the fake news of our culture being contradicted by the real news of, of the Bible. And yet, Lord, each of us in this room bear the consequences and the results of living according to misinformation, living according to fake news. And so, Lord, I pray that just as Paul taught us in these two chapters, help us to first and foremost make sure our hearts are rooted in the gospel, rooted in Jesus Christ who gave up infinite riches, became poverty-stricken so that we who were poverty-stricken might become rich. And out of that, may we move from being centripetal, trying to fill the hole in our heart with things, being centripetal, finding our hearts filled with the gospel, now generously giving to meet the needs of others with our time, our energy, our gifts, and our money. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.